What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, the Inflation Reduction Act signed. Yo, it's now law. The impact, we hope, for American wallets with National Economic Council Director Brian Deese. I think the fair characterization is that this bill is the most significant and consequential step that Congress and the president could take on the fiscal policy side to try to reduce price pressures in the economy while also providing consumers with some direct relief. And the striking data behind our educator shortage. More teachers are leaving their jobs than the average worker. USA Facts President Poppy McDonald. You can certainly see concern, right, as parents go back. Um, will there be qualified uh, daycare teachers there? Will there be teachers there to support their kids? Those big stories today. But first, me mania's return. AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Robinhood all trading up. Tasty Trades founder Tom Sosnov on the retail traders getting back in the game. But I think it is really good for the business because it does bring people back and it gets them excited about finance. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for us. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, good to see you again. Been a while. Great to see you. It has been a while. It's nice We've to been see passing you. like it's, ships uh, in the night here. Uh, ships Joe in is, the night, but here we are. Here we are. Joe is off today. It just keeps getting more dramatic. Bed Bath & Beyond now spiking 60% today. It's to $25 a share, and this is its heaviest trading volume day ever. Checkout shares of Bed Bath & Beyond rallying as much as 70%, 70 percent, seven zero percent. This one, well, this is pretty incredible, okay. GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen is getting in on the action. The existential dynamics to me at Bed Bath & Beyond are different than a GameStop or even an AMC. Check this out because we're watching shares surging in activity in Beth ba Bed Bath & Beyond. Where is Joe for this, uh, Becky, given that I know this is his favorite uh, favorite company skyrocketing more than 70% to an intraday high above $28 yesterday. This is amid multiple halts due to volatility. It ended yesterday's session 29% higher. This comes after a regulatory filing uh, from Monday night that showed that GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen placing another bet on the struggling retailer, buying call options this time with strike prices between $60 and $80. That means he's betting that the stock can rise as high as $80 per share. For context, the stock closing on Monday at $16. Now, Cohen had purchased, Cohen's purchase grabbing a lot of attention, uh, as you might imagine, among retail traders on Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum. The ticker was reportedly the most popular mention in that chat room yesterday. We're going to talk more about this story with Tom uh, Sosnoff uh, from Tasty Trade, who can maybe break down what's happening and where all the retail action is coming from. Becky? Twitter antics from Elon Musk last night. The world's richest person tweeting 
that he is buying Manchester United before later tweeting that it was a long-running joke and that he's not buying any sports teams. Of course, that uh, admission that it's a joke didn't come for more than four hours after the original tweet. And in the meantime, there was quite a bit of activity in Manchester United shares. Manchester United has been traded publicly on the New York Stock Exchange since, I believe, 2012. That stock is still up by about 3.8 percent. The tweet followed this one in which Musk said he supports the left half of the Republican Party and the right half of the Democratic Party. But, Andrew, I don't know if he didn't know Manchester United was a publicly traded team, if he wasn't thinking about this, but clearly uh, market manipulation if you're looking at this as a regulator. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's market manipulation. I, I, I imagine in this case it was unintentional. I, I, I want to believe My guess is, too, my guess is he didn't realize, wasn't thinking it through, but you are talking about people who made and lost a lot of money in the meantime in the four and a right. half hours. So, but I think in terms of in terms of describing as market manipulation, it's only market manipulation if you are demonstrably trying to buy and sell it yourself. Which okay, is let, to me, say, you know, let me just say, right. if isn't there the kind of the level of with great power comes great responsibility sort of mantra, the Spider-Man oh, thing no, no, that no, goes no. through There's with this? There's no like, question that wow. he should not have tweeted this in any which way way, given, given the impact on the stock market and given the impact on this individual stock and the potential for people to make or lose lots of money. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying in terms of thinking of it as true manipulation. Now, now if he was doing he it as a, as a joke and knew that, my, look, in, interestingly, uh, there's some folks online who've been looking at options activity in this stock. And there, there was, was a bunch of it activity very, very recently. So yeah. did somebody put a bug in his ear? I mean, that's when it gets more complicated if, in fact, there was something else going on. But I, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm generally, I think, not sympathetic, but, you know, I think it was a mistake, I think. Joining us right now to talk about all of it is Tom Sosnoff, he's Taste of Trades founder and CEO. Tom, I want to get into it with each individual name, but there, there does seem to be a trend here. The phenomenon does seem to be back at least a little bit. What do you think is happening? Well, I think uh, there was a, you know, we had a pretty decent size or durational hiatus. And uh, I think everybody... Uh, Got the bug again. There was a little, you know, there's um, there's a big demand for speculation, Andrew, and I think that uh, it's back. Just it may be it may be short lived, am, but it's back. Am I wrong to think, Tom, that that the bug also you, you need to have the bug be, to be back, but you also need to have money to be back. And and the truth is that money is not really back. I mean, things have moved a little bit higher. Uh, over, over the past couple months, and maybe that's what we're talking about here? Well, I think, you know, after trading these markets for, for many, many decades, people, they, they regroup and they reload. And I think that, you know, once you catch the bug at any point in anywhere in your career, all of a sudden it feels like, hey, I'm missing something when I'm not trading. And I actually think this is really good for business. I don't think necessarily, you know, BBBY going up, you know, doubling or something in a couple of days is, is great for BBBY. But I think think it is really good for the business because it does bring people back and it gets them excited about finance. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for us. And I think it's good for the industry. Can we talk, though, about what seems like, I don't know, can I call it insanity? Insanity? Yeah, it, I sure. mean, when you look at this stock now up 20 percent in the pre-market today, we talked about it being up 70 percent intraday yesterday yeah. off of the effectively call options that Ryan Cohen has bought where he believes that the stock or at least indicates, I don't know if, whether he believes it or not, but indicates that he thinks at least or he's hoping that the stock pays out to him when it, if it's at 60 or 80 dollars but is that realistic what explain no, this trade as far as you can uh, 
can see what's happening here. I, I mean, no, it's not realistic. And no, it's, you know, I mean, in, in my world, in, in you know, from, from a trader's perspective, I would say it's an idiotic play. But, um, you know, I mean, he's taking a shot and he's trying to create some excitement around whatever he's doing. He's taking, you know, I mean, sometimes people think they can move markets and I guess sometimes they can get people excited if they get to the right crowd. But usually it's pretty, again, it's, it's, it, it's hard to make it last. And I mean, realistically, the expected move in Bed Bath & Beyond, given where the stock closed last night over the next 30 days is $8. The idea though, that he's buying at 60 or $80, do you think that's just to prop the stock? I mean, Propping a stock up temporarily doesn't help you if you're a long-term owner, unless you think he's selling equity at the same time. I, I just don't understand the no, trade. I, I, I don't I don't think I don't think he's selling equity at the same time. I mean, that would be that'd be very dangerous path, a very dangerous route to take. I do think he's trying to create some excitement. And, you know, there um, sometimes when people buy very far out of the money calls, they do create some, let's call it, I don't want to say manipulative excitement, but it is a little bit artificial, and it does get people fired up a little because they start thinking about, wow, this is a crazy, unusual but to activity. What, to what end? To what end, Tom? This is the part I don't understand. I can get you. I, if I'm going to spend money to get people excited, that's great. But it's not an investment. No, it's not an investment, and it's not a good trade even. And, I mean, on the off chance that it works, like I said, it's a four or five standard deviation move. So you're talking about, statistically speaking, you're talking about something that's a fraction of a percent. So is that a good move? Well, it wouldn't be for me, and it wouldn't be for you. But some people are like, hey, you know what? I'll roll the dice on a you know on a less than 1% chance of something happening. I mean, maybe that's the way certain people think. It's not the way I think. Okay, talking about rolling the dice, and I don't think he was even rolling the dice. But nonetheless, Elon Musk hitting up Twitter last night, saying that he's going to be buying Manchester United only for several hours later, saying, ah, just joking. Enough people took it seriously that the stock moved. Yeah, that that was crazy, too, because I think he was just I mean, he's obviously really kidding around. But that's a that's a much different a, a much different situation. I mean, would the stock go up about, you know, a buck or something? I mean, and the option volume increased, but it's still, you know, I think it's only a, about a $2 billion market cap. And so, I mean, there are a few people that are going to take wild shots with, you know, with anything Elon says. I mean, he's got that kind of power. But I think he was just, you know, he was just teasing the marketplace. Now, but do you think that with that power, I mean, Becky and I were talking about this earlier, you know, with that power comes responsibility. And therefore, the question is, Given the SEC, uh, you know, settlement before around his own yeah. companies, should he be talking about stocks at all? Was this a mistake in which he didn't even realize it was a publicly traded company? That's possible, too. I mean, how do you how do you think about that? I mean, it's possible he didn't realize it was publicly traded because I didn't even realize it was publicly traded. But um, but I do think it's it's he's walking down a very dangerous path. And I don't like it. I mean, so far, he's had a bit of Teflon to him and and nothing has stuck with respect to, you know, the regulators. But if the rest of us did something like that, it would be pretty ugly. So I, I agree with you there. I, I don't like as a dangerous path. I All I can think of is that he he really didn't know it was publicly traded. Tom, I want to thank you for joining us this morning and trying to help us better understand all of the things that are taking place in this wild and sometimes weird market that we're living in. I appreciate it. I, comple I completely get it. Thanks so much. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, fractures in the GOP and what defeated, but not defeatist, lawmaker Liz Cheney is doing about the rift and the Inflation Reduction Act. It's now law. 
White House National Economic Council Brian Deese on the victory for the president and the work still left to do. The inflation challenge is real and it's global. Uh, and uh, we're seeing inflation prints across the developed world. The OECD average is now close to 10%. Uh, and obviously that's a significant concern. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. It's time for a roundup of yesterday's primary elections. In Wyoming, Congresswoman Liz Cheney has lost her Republican primary to Trump-backed challenger Harriet Hageman. That was by a wide margin, too. Here's what Cheney said after that loss. Tonight, Harriet Hageman has received the most votes in this primary. She won. I called her to concede the race. This primary election is over. But now the real work begins. Meantime, in Alaska's nonpartisan primary, Senator Lisa Murkowski will advance to the general election, along with Trump-backed Republican rival Kelly Shibaka. If you care about Alaska's future, you should be voting for Lisa Murkowski. We can ask the rhetorical question about what really is the Republican Party nowadays. I've never believed that a party, a political party, should be the party of one individual. I just don't believe that. That Senate race will be decided for the first time by ranked choice voting. And former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin has clinched one of the four spots in the ranked choice election for the state's congressional seat, keeping alive her hopes for a political comeback. Palin is also a candidate in a separate special election to fill the remaining months of the late Congressman Don Young's term. That race likely won't be called anytime soon. Mail-in ballots will be accepted, though, through the end of the month, as long as they were postmarked on or before yesterday. Big corporations will now pay a minimum of 15% tax instead of us 555 of them got away with paying $0 in federal income tax on $40 billion in profit. And I'm keeping my campaign commitment. No one, let me emphasize, no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. Now. I'm going to take action that uh, I've been looking forward to doing for 18 months. I'm going to sign the special reduction. Okay. Here you go. Now look. That was President Biden just yesterday before he signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. The legislation includes a close to $370 billion investment in climate and energy policies, billions more to shore up the Affordable Care Act, and a 15% minimum tax on companies earning more than a billion dollars a year. But questions remain as to whether or not the bill will live up to its name and actually reduce inflation. 
Joining us right now to talk about all of it is Brian Deese, director of the National Economic Council. Brian, it's great to see you this morning um, and fascinating to see you literally after we just heard the inflation numbers actually out of the UK in double digits. I'm curious how you think about that and how you think about we're going to be hearing from the Fed later. We'll see those minutes in terms of where we really are in the inflation story in the United States. Well, it's great to be here. Um, I think the numbers we saw this morning underscore that the inflation challenge is real and it's global. Uh, and uh, we're seeing inflation prints across the developed world. The OECD average is now close to 10%. Uh, and obviously that's a significant concern. I think they also underscore that the United States is in a better and more resilient position to address this issue than virtually any other major economy. Um, obviously we've seen some welcome uh, uh, some welcome moves on, on inflation. We saw that in, uh, in July. Uh, and the trajectory of gas prices continues to come down. We're at uh, close to a dollar ten down from uh, the highs that we saw in June. So that is all. Uh, that is all progress. I think the most important thing from a policy perspective is to do everything that we can on the fiscal policy side to try to complement what the Federal Reserve is doing on the monetary right. policy side. And that's why the Inflation Reduction Act that you mentioned is uh, is a consequential, important step in that respect. What do the White House models look like? Forget about the Fed models and maybe some of the bank models. What, what does the Brian Deese model say about where inflation really is today and where? you think it'll be 12 months from now. I think there's lots of concern that, you know, we can bring it down as a result of the supply issue and, and the Fed, uh, you know, pushing the brakes on the economy to some degree. But at some point, there's also a view that this might actually get persistent at four or five percent and actually be very hard to actually get down to two percent. Well, I started answering that question from the overall what were our overall economic conditions. And of course, inflation is one important element of that. But if you look at where we are in the trajectory of the, the cycle and the economic recovery, we continue to have a historically strong labor market recovery. Uh, we are seeing you know, some, some reduction in, in, in job openings, but continued hiring uh, at a historic pace and that that strength provides resilience in the economy. Uh, we're continuing to see resilience in household balance sheets, uh, and uh, and that that is something that has persisted uh, through this uh, through this transition uh, cycle uh, as well. And we are seeing, you know, again, some moderation that uh, that we should not count on, and we should not take any one uh, month of data. Uh, as uh, as definitive evidence, but some moderation, uh, and particularly in categories where uh, people and families feel it, and that's why you know the, the decline in gas prices right. is so welcome. Obviously, we're continuing to see elevated price increases on food, and that's an issue. That's an issue that we uh, keep a close eye on. But I think if we look overall where we are and where we're going, we are in in this transition. We are in this transition from having grown very historically fast to a more stable trajectory. And that transition has elements that we would have predicted, for example, in the housing market, the, uh, the, that is the direct consequence of the, uh, of, the, of the Fed's tightening. From a policy perspective, we are looking at where can we take steps that actually provide consumers some relief, right. provide families some relief, and how do we do that in a way that's consistent with lowering price pressures in the economy overall? So that's, that's sort yeah, of so our I want to talk about that relief in just a second, but let me, you know, I don't know if you can see the screen, but we have a, a title, the Inflation Reduction Act. Will it live up to its name? Now, I don't know what you think is what's in a name is, is, is maybe a fair question. I know a lot of people who look at this bill and say, you know what? It's a climate bill or it's uh, as to, you know, it's a tax bill or it's all sorts of things. 
but maybe not a an inflation reduction bill. Or maybe at the margin it's up or down a little bit, but that's not really the purpose. Do you think that's fair? I don't. I think the fair characterization is that this bill is the most significant and consequential step that Congress and the president could take on the fiscal policy side to try to reduce price pressures in the economy while also providing consumers with some direct relief. I mean, let's talk about in practice what this bill will do. It will lower health care premiums for 13 million Americans starting here in just uh, a couple of months. It will make everyday items that people need to upgrade their homes or to commute to work, make them more affordable uh, by providing tax credits and rebates to them. It will lower the cost of prescription drug prices to end consumers, but also to the federal government, and it will lower the federal deficit. That's Those are the things that this bill will do. And I think that the fair assessment of that is that that is... It's historic. Uh, it's taking on long, uh, long wait awaited right. issues that our country hasn't taken on, like prescription drugs and like combating climate change. But it also is the most responsible thing that uh, that we could be doing on the fiscal policy side as we navigate through this economic right. trends. What do you think the implication of the, this 15 percent tax corporate tax will do in terms of R&D and some of the other things that some of the larger companies uh, that historically have tried to uh, benefit uh, from the tax breaks that they can get by investing in those things. Do you think you're going to see a reduction there? I, I don't, because I think you need to look at the the full imp impact of the, the, fit, the fiscal policy that we're putting in place. And let's just step back for a second. With the chips and science bill that the president signed into law just a few weeks ago, and the Inflation Reduction Act that the president signed into law yesterday, we are making the most significant public investment in our own manufacturing capability, our own research and innovation capability as a nation, and providing long-term certainty, which is what investors and companies are looking for, long-term certainty that there are going to be incentives to invest here in the United States, build here in the United States, innovate here in the United States. And we are doing that in a not, generational way. Right. For a very specific industry, I'm just saying, broad, broadly speaking, if you're making over a billion dollars, whether you're going to actually shift in terms of how you think about R&D spend as a result of this, that, that in the broadest context, no, but, that's, but, that's the... But, but Andrew, it's not just it's not just one industry. Obviously, the, the, the Chips and Science Bill uh, has a dedicated focus on the semiconductor industry, but it also has the largest investment in broadly R&D and innovation across our economy uh, since we, we took undertook the national right. effort to put a man on the moon. And if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, the long-term incentives right. across energy and transportation affect industries and sectors of our economy, which are quite broad, right. from healthcare to energy, to transportation, to semiconductors, to our innovation and manufacturing base. And look, people said that it wasn't possible to see the kind of rebound in manufacturing employment and manufacturing investment that we are now living through right now, more than 600,000 manufacturing jobs created. People said that that wasn't uh, possible. These bills and the public incentives in this bill provide right. long-term certainty to invest across the board in our industrial base, not just in semiconductors. Brian, can you explain for us, because I've still been baffled by it, uh, Senator Kristen Sinema carried interest. This is something, talk about something that, that you've been talking about for a very long time, trying to get rid of. How you think that that happened at the last minute and why you think she was so vociferous in her support for the private equity industry. Look, I, I'm gonna let individual uh, members of Congress speak to their own policy views. What I can tell you is from the president's perspective, from our administration's perspective, we've been consistent. There's no rational basis for having uh, the carried uh, interest loophole. It's something that we believe uh, it should be fixed and we're gonna keep at it. And I think we can make progress on that 
uh, on the back of this bill. And at the same time, establishing a minimum tax and broadening the base with a low rate of 15% around a corporate minimum tax is a highly sensible and long overdue tax policy that would make a big difference in terms of the structure of our corporate tax code. That's something that we're getting done in this context. You just said said that you you thought you could make progress on the carried interest uh, issue on the back of this bill. You would need 60 votes to do that. How, how would you get there? Look, but we're going to we're we're going to we're going to continue with that and other tax policies that uh, we didn't accomplish in the context of this legislation, but that we have been making uh, the case uh, for for years, right. including on the individual income tax side for very very high income uh, individuals. Uh, and the way we're going to make we're going to make the case for that is by demonstrating the economic logic and the practical logic of doing this. The, you know, we need to be fiscally responsible and we need to demonstrate that we can make the investments we need in this country, like investing in accelerating the clean energy transition, increasing energy right. security, and do it in a way that's fiscally responsible. Hey, Brian, the way to do that we, is we to got to jump, but I, I, I got 30 seconds and I just want to talk about hearing aids uh, for those who are not okay. familiar with what's going on, because I think there's actually, talk about in, inflation reduction, that is actually probably the biggest inflation reduction for those who need hearing aids in this country with a big announcement uh, from the FDA. Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, Hearing aids this fall will start to be sold over the counter, no longer have to go and get a prescription. What that means is lower costs. We estimate that the price for a pair of hearing aids could come down by almost $3,000 by uh, being able to buy them over the counter and also more innovation. This is an example where regulation was actually creating a barrier to entry and keeping more innovators from the market. And now, in addition to the practical benefit of being able to walk into a drugstore, buy hearing aids over the counter at significantly lower cost, we're also going to open up new opportunities for companies to innovate, which we think will drive prices down and create better options for consumers. So there's tens of millions of people out there who suffer from uh, modest hearing uh, loss. This is a big deal for them. And as you say, it's a big deal for lowering prices in a practical way. Brian Deese, uh, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. Up next on Squawk Pod, an unprecedented number of childcare workers have left their careers during the pandemic, and it's creating a big problem now for other workers heading back to the office. USA Facts President Poppy McDonald has the data on who's quitting and why. It's people who are low paid. Childcare workers make about $13 on average. They're at the far end of the spectrum, right there with uh, maintenance workers. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand under by in three, two, one, cue Ander. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Osorkin along with Becky Quick this morning. As employees are being called to return to the office, they are facing more challenges at home, including the cost of child care. In 2021, 16% of child care workers switched jobs and occupations and 14% stopped working entirely. That's the highest percentage since the data has been tracked by USA Facts. Joining us right now to break down the data is USA Facts President and Managing Director Poppy McDonald. 
And Poppy, I think it's so important what you all are doing right now, kind of highlighting the numbers so we see things, because we've been talking anecdotally about how childcare is hard to find, how it's hard to find teachers and there's a huge shortage, but there aren't real national statistics to track a lot of these things. You guys are shining some light so we can tell what's really happening. And why don't we break it down, starting with childcare first? What's happening? What do you see in the facts? Absolutely. So USA Facts certainly heard the swirl of concern of our people leaving their occupations because of the pandemic. And when it comes to the numbers, we wanted to look at government data. What is it telling us about who is leaving their occupations? On average, post the pandemic, 2020 to 2021, 13% of Americans were choosing to leave their occupations. That's consistent with before the pandemic, 2019 to 2020, it was also 13%. Far higher, though, for childcare workers, where, as you mentioned, 30% chose to leave their occupations. That was up from 25% in 2017. For teachers, um, below the average, about 9% um, are choosing to leave their occupations. It's been fairly consistent. However, higher when you look at uh, occupations in teaching, like pre-K and kindergarten, where it was 17%. Um, and for teachers' assistance, where it doubled from 9% in 2017 to 2018% in 2020. Um, so you can certainly see concern, right, as parents go back. Um, will there be qualified uh, daycare teachers there? Will there be teachers there to support their kids? How does this match up with what we've seen in other occupations? Because I know people thought nurses were getting burned out, that they were going to be quitting their jobs, that, 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 that this kind of ran through a lot of different occupations. What, what do you see across the spectrum? We did not see that for nurses. So um, what we're looking at, right, is who chooses to leave their occupation, not nurses choosing to go from a hospital, but who are remaining a nurse and maybe going into a private care setting. So nurses, we saw it be pretty consistent. But when you look at an occupation like daycare workers, um, they are, are up there in terms of bartenders, people in the food service. Um, as a parent, um, if you think about uh, the consistency of who's taking your care of your child during the day uh, versus who's uh, serving you your food, both, both valid and uh, important occupations, but we are seeing uh, childcare workers up there in terms of a, a direct correlation in the data about who's leaving their occupation. And it's people who are low paid. Uh, childcare workers make about $13 on average. They're at the far end of the spectrum when we uh, map the data in terms of their compensation right there with uh, maintenance workers um, and folks who, uh, who work in landscaping. Um, and so we see a direct correlation. The lower paid you are, the less training you have, the higher likelihood it is that you are going to choose to leave your occupation. You know, that's interesting because it was happening as minimum wages were being raised in lots of national places. You think about Walmart and Target, where they were really raising uh, minimum wages. Amazon was paying a lot more for that, too. Is it are they switching to go into occupations like that? Do you track that? We don't know what they're choosing to do. We do know in the case of uh, childcare workers where 30% were choosing to leave. We know 16% said, I'm choosing a different occupation. We don't know what that was. We know 14% said, I'm just leaving the workforce altogether. So that's a pipeline of talent that is just choosing no longer to work. Um, and we also know in the case of, of wages, you've got uh, teachers who are at the 13, you've got daycare workers who are at $13 an hour, 
you've got teachers who are more at the median and make an average of around in the United States, an average of 67, just under $67,000. That certainly varies. Uh, you know, Mississippi, it's uh, closer to 45. In New York, it's closer to 85. So it varies depending on where you live. But when USA Facts uh, did an analysis of teacher wages, while they've had an increase, when you look at inflation since 2000, 32 states, those increases have not kept up with inflation. So you've got teachers in the profession for 20 years, and now their purchasing power is actually less. Um, in three states, uh, teachers actually saw a 10% decrease in their compensation uh, when you compare it to inflation and the cost of living. I guess the question becomes, these numbers, I, I think they only go through 2021, so we're looking at numbers that are outdated already. You've had a lot of changes in federal policy where you're not paying people um, if they're not going into work. You have things that have come kind of a long way from the COVID pandemic where you do have therapies that people can get um, and a lot of better ways of improving medical health around it if you contract COVID. Do you think these numbers will show a big change when you look back, let's say, at this year's numbers? We are absolutely going to be following the data. So we expect it to be come out in January to see what happened as uh, people return to their jobs. And there's definitely going to be more demand for as in-person work increases in September, more demand for uh, child care. And we've seen uh, schools with pandemic relief funding and, and trying to help support kids who were uh, doing school remotely and have some learning gaps add teacher positions. So what will that look like um, in, in September? Um, how will that change? We'll certainly be following the data um, and it will you know, be interesting to see um, how that impacts um, folks returning to work and how it impacts our, our youth and, and children. Poppy, thank you. Poppy McDonald from uh, USA Facts. Good to see you. Becky, see you tomorrow. Okay, and make sure uh, everybody else sees us tomorrow as well. And that is the podcast for today, this Wednesday in August. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. You can tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the best of Squawk Box, the smartest interviews and analysis from our TV show, right into your ears, please follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you.